How's it going? What's the problem? I, I don't understand what's going on here. I always dress nicely. Um, for those of you that are our guests, you're probably wondering, uh, what's going on? Uh, I'm, you're lucky if I tuck in my shirt, so wearing a, wearing a suit jacket is, is maybe a little much. I actually was uh, putting my suit jacket on. And one of our congregants was walking by the hallway, wa- looked in my office, and this is exact quote. What? <laughs> exact quote, exact word. So, uh, so there you go. But it won't happen too often, but you want to take advantage of it when it does. So make sure, uh, make sure you get all the, the pictures you need for ransom or whatever uh, you need. Oh, almost forgot, actually. Got to, uh, got to get my closet. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, closet. Here we go. There we go, there we go. How's that? I know some of you are still like, what is, what's going on? The guy's getting dressed on stage, what, what is happening here? Uh, just uh, hold on to me. I could, the, zip, the zipper cardigan that Mr. Rogers got, I see why he does the zippers. The buttons are, uh, they're a little bit of a pain. I'm off? That's why they're a pain. Yeah. There we go. How does that, is that better? There we go. I, I think it looks good. Just like that. What do you think? What do you think? Now you see how I don't tuck my shirt in. This is it's a much easier process not to do this. So, Anyway, welcome. If you're visiting, we're really, really glad you're here today. Uh, glad you could make it. Glad you could see this side of our church family. Oh, I forgot one other thing. Just got to go the whole nine yards here. There we go. They're even blue. Won't you be my neighbor? (laughs) Mr. Rogers did this every show. Can you imagine? Every single show. I guess he didn't have a live audience. It's probably the biggest difference. There we go. How are we doing now? All right. Doing good? Doing good? All right. (laughs) Ta-da! Woo! Under two minutes. Wow, that was, uh, that was amazing. All right, now I'm ready to preach. Here we go. Oh, my shoulders. My wife's saying my shoulders. Here we go. Like this? I don't know what you're talking about. You guys are just going to have to put up with this, however this looks. This is what it's going to be for the rest of the day. All right, very good. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? Anybody want to take my shoes? No? Oh, okay, I'll just leave them here. Nobody wants my shoes. How's everybody doing today? All right, everybody in a good mood? 
All right, take your Bibles. Turn to the book of Luke, chapter 10. If you've got a phone on, turn it off. That would help me out. It helps me concentrate a little bit. Luke, chapter 10 is where we're going to be, and we're going to be talking about uh, where this whole idea comes from, the whole idea of what it means to be a neighbor, uh, where we get this, why we talk about this. It's probably something that it's like, uh, like a fish in water. Like when you're in the church world, you hear this concept all the time, so maybe it just doesn't resonate in the same way that it does when you're outside of it. But we're going to talk about all of this today. So Luke, chapter 10, we're going to start right in verse 25. This may be a familiar passage to you. If it is, read with me because there's some stuff in here that may not be familiar. If it isn't, uh, you're going to enjoy this. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit inter- eternal life? Now, that's a fair question, right? It does say he was testing him. So there is a little bit of like bad motives going on, but that's a fair question. You want to know that the guy that's teaching you stuff about God is not a uh, nut job. You want to make sure that this person knows what he's talking about. And so even if his question's not fair, or even if his question doesn't come from kind of like honest, an honest place, it's still an important question. Not infrequently at church, we get calls from people who will ask us questions that aren't really questions. They pose it like a question, but they're looking for a very specific answer. And if we give the wrong answer, they're not going to come to church. So somebody will call us up and say, they'll say something like, oh, are are you a whole gospel, uh, Holy Ghost filled praise in church or something like that. And that means something to them. There's very, something very specific that means to them. And we'll say something like, well, we like Jesus. Is that, is that good? I mean, is that fit? And it, it doesn't. And that's the problem because they've got a very specific idea of what they want to be taught in mind. And if we don't fit that bill, then they're not going to come and they're not going to listen to us. So we get this kind of all the time. Dads, you probably have a little test. If you have a teenage daughter, you probably have at least some things that you're looking for, some tell, tells that you're looking for that you don't, you don't tell your daughter about because you don't want her to tell this new boyfriend she's bringing home. But there's some things you're looking for. Does he have a firm handshake? Because if he doesn't have a firm handshake, he's not going to be my son-in-law. Does he look me in the eye? You know, does, he, does, is, does he ask my permission to take my daughter out? You have some things that you're probably looking for in the guy that you want to date your daughter. Or to not date your daughter is probably the more likely case. So there is a, there, it's good to get more information. And so this expert in the law, this is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with him asking these questions. It may come from a bad place, but there's nothing wrong with making sure that the person that you're listening to is telling you something that, uh, that is important. So, so what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And I think that's a pretty interesting question, meaning that different people came up with different conclusions. What, is it, what, what does the law say? What, what, what's your take on this? Verse 27, he answered, this is the expert, he answered, and this is, this is this guy that's testing Jesus. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And we've heard that before, right? That's something you're familiar with in the church world. And then he says this, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, to be clear, there is no Old Testament verse that you can flip to and says, that says, drum roll, please. This is the greatest command in the Bible. What follows, what you are about to read is the most important thing. There's nothing like that. So scholars and Pharisees and scribes and lay people had studied and debated and argued for a long time about what they thought the most important things in the Bible were. And they had, a lot of people had come to this conclusion that, hey, the first most important thing, it's God. We've got to love God. That's the big one, right? That's a big one. But the second one wasn't maybe quite so clear. 
But we know this, like we had the advantage of having Jesus having told us. We, know, we just sang a song called The Greatest Commands. I mean, we know the answer to this question. If Jesus were to pop in for a little quiz and said, hey, what's the greatest commands? We would know it right off the bat. We would have no problem. But this is not quite so clear to everybody in this conversation with whom Jesus is interacting. They're probably mostly agree, love God. But this other one, love each other, that may not be quite as, uh, as agreed upon. But Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Let's move on. Next question. That's it. That's kind of surprising. He and this teacher in the law, this expert in the law, actually agree on something. It's pretty, pretty surprising to me. That was an easy one. And it almost feels like the, this answer, love God, love others, is the equivalent, like maybe the first century equivalent of what we have in church when, when kids answer Jesus to every question. Like they know, they know there's, a, there's probably a three and four chance that whatever the teacher asks, the answer is Jesus. So they can zone out and then just jump back in with Jesus. That's probably the answer. And this was probably a pretty standard, a pretty fair answer. And Jesus says, yeah, love God, love people, let's move on. But then it starts to get interesting. And this is where I really, uh, I, I think this is pretty, pretty fascinating. But wanting to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Wanting to justify himself. He asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, that seems dumb, right? Who is my neighbor? We know the answer to that. Who's, uh, DJ, who's one of your neighbors? All right, a lot of people. Very good. Very diplomatic answer in case you forgot the neighbor's names. Very good. Who's your neighbor? The people that live around you, the people you know, the people that you interact with. I mean, we know that. Who is my neighbor? What kind of dumb question is that? Come on. You're an expert in the law. What are you asking questions like, who is my neighbor for? And even the the crowd around him may have been wondering. But I don't think this was quite as clearly agreed upon in the first century as we probably assume it was. I, I totally get the, the reason for this question. I like to know limits, right? I like to know what's expected of me. I don't want a, a, a speed limit sign to say 60-ish. I may want to drive 60-ish, but if I get pulled over, I don't want the police officer to say you were going 60-ish. I mean, there, I want a line. I want a clear line about wh- when, when am I right and when am I wrong. I want to be technically right when it comes to driving. I don't want to be right, right, because I do like to speed here and there a little bit. I mean, or whatever. Maybe I don't. I'm not confessing that, you know, in case there are any police officers in the room. Who is my neighbor? Now, this is the kind of question that you ask when you want to be technically right, but you don't necessarily want to be right right. You know what I mean? This is the kind of questions your teenagers ask you when they want to know exactly how close they can get without getting the wrath of mom and dad brought down upon them. They want to be technically right, but they don't necessarily want to be like heart right, right right, however you want to put that. I ran a green light the other day. Now, I I said that right. I ran a green light. (laughs) And here's what happened. I was on my way back from the church building back to my house. It was late in the evening, and I pulled up to one of those stoplights that was just, it's one of those dumb stoplights that don't need to exist in the world. There's nobody around for miles. I pull up and, like a good kid, you know, hit my brake, and I'm looking around. There's nobody over here, nobody over there, nobody over there, and I'm sitting in my car, and I'm starting to think, you know what? I think I'm going to run this red light. (laughs) Now, some of you may be hardened criminals, but, I mean, this was a big deal for me, like, I think I'm going to run it. So I'm like doing another double check. Because this is going to be the case. I'm going to run a red light and there's going to be a police officer like right behind me that I didn't see. Like, ah, I should have checked my rear view. So I'm looking around. Nobody's coming. 
There's no reason I shouldn't run this red light. Nothing is stopping me. There's, there's nothing. I'm not going to get in trouble for running this red light. And I'm, this is true. I'm starting to get a little adrenaline going here. Like, <laughs> whoo, like I'm about to rob a bank or something. Like, this is a big deal. So I'm like, okay, gear up. Let's do this. Let's do this. And I hit the, the accelerator. I'm just going to buzz right through it. And it turns green. <laughs> so. It was disappointing a little bit, actually, to tell you the truth, because I did not break the law, which is also good for the person preaching. But I, I was technically right, but I was still wrong, right? Yeah, how often can you say that 10 times fast? I was technically right because I didn't break the law, but I was trying to break the law. I was trying to, and just, the, just because I wasn't able to just makes me a bad criminal, but it doesn't make me not a criminal. I was wanting to be technically right, but not right, right. And that's the kind of question you ask, this who is my neighbor type of question, when you're not sure if you want to be right, right. He wants to technically obey, but doesn't want to really obey. He seems to be looking for the sharp edges, the limits of this command. When can I check this command off my list? And, and to be fair, this is not as simple a question as it may appear at first glance. Who is my neighbor? What they were debating about was an Old Testament passage in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and you're welcome to look at it, but we'll bring it up here on the screen. Leviticus 19, 18 says this. This is the passage they're debating. This is the passage the expert in the law had said. This was the second commandment, second greatest commandment. You shall not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. And this is the only place I could find it in the old law. There are other places that talk about caring for people, things like that. But the only place where it's worded like this. But... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so scholars had debated for centuries, what does that exactly mean? Who is our neighbor? When do we say we can check the box? When do we say we have done this? When do we say we are technically right? How do we decide that? Who is my neighbor? And so they'd come to many different conclusions. Some people had come to the conclusion like, well, your neighbor is your neighbor. Duh. It's the people that live around you. You could draw a line between your house and that guy's house and maybe make a big sphere and that people that live within that sphere, that's your neighbor. Let the Bible speak where the Bible speaks, right? You love your neighbors. Well, what if, what about, what if they're two blocks down? You don't have to love them. They're not your neighbors. What if they're in the town over? You don't have to love them. You think I'm joking, but this is where people, they're like, hey, it's literally what the Bible says. You love those who are nearby you. Love those people. If they're not nearby you, guess what? You don't have to do. You don't have to love them. Now, that sounds ludicrous to us, right? But they're taking this at face value. They're reading this verse for what it says. Now, most people didn't agree with that. Most people were like, I don't know, that seems too, that seems too harsh because you're walking you know, a couple blocks away from home and there's somebody that needs help and you're like, nah, forget that guy. He's not my neighbor. He doesn't live nearby me. So most people didn't agree with that, but there are people who believe that, who taught that, who preached that. Still people to this day who believe that. Uh, other people looked at this and they correctly pointed out that this verse is not as grammatically clear as it may seem. Now, I know you're like, oh, great, grammar at church. I'm so excited. But bear with me for a second. The other group of people looked at the as yourself portion of this verse. And they said, the Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we use the as yourself part to modify love. You love people like you want to be loved. The golden rule. That's how we view it. But remember, we have the advantage of Jesus having interpreted this passage for us. 
They looked at this, and this is the prevailing wisdom of the day, and to some degree today, too, among people who take the Old Testament more seriously than, than, uh, than, than, than the New Testament. But this, the idea was, as yourself modified your, your neighbor, what type of neighbor you love. You love the neighbor who is as yourself. And so most of them believed that you could, you love your fellow countrymen. You love your fellow people around you. That was the prevailing wisdom of the day. Now, you're like, that doesn't seem right. But we maybe tend to do that. For the most part, for most of you, when you're watching the Olympics, you pull for the United States, right? Like, if you're sitting in a room and somebody is pulling for, like, Russia, you're like, what is wrong with you? Who are you? You know, we pull. If we're American citizens, we tend to pull for our country. We want our country to win. That kind of makes sense. So they believed that you loved your fellow countrymen, the people who were as yourself. So when we read this, we're like, wait, that's just simple. You just love everybody. Jesus said, love everybody. But it wasn't that simple to them. It could have been your literal neighbor, the people who are literally nearby you. It could mean the people who are like you. And we look at that and we're like, oh, that seems a little simplistic, but just got to understand, this took a little bit of interpretation for them to understand. The other day, uh, I was out and about and I got a text from my wife. And the text uh, said this, if you want to jump back for me. Um, says, when you go to the store, would you pick up tortilla chips and vanilla wafers? Two basic ingredients, right? Just for just everything you need in, in life. Tortilla chips and vanilla wafers. And I was like, yeah, of course, you got it. So I went to the store, and I'm searching around the store high and low, and I cannot find vanilla wafers. Like, you'd think that would be a simple thing. Like, every store, excuse me, where's the vanilla wafer section? Can you uh, point me in that? There's, like, no vanilla wafers. I found these gluten-free vanilla wafers. I talked about <laughs> gluten a couple weeks ago, but we'll bring that back. Um, but I didn't know, like, I could not find them. And so, I, you know, I was hunting the store. Like, like I don't get a chance to, to hunt, and I was hunting the store, searching every aisle, scouring every shelf. There's got to be vanilla wafers, because my wife would not send, send me on a task that, uh, for a thing that did not exist. There has got to be vanilla wafers, and finally, I found them, and it was like the clouds broke, and the light shone, and angels were singing, and I found vanilla wafers. Go to the next slide if you would. Yeah! <laughs> See, now, th- you guys have the advantage of knowing something I did not know. I did not know. I did not understand. My wife was making a dessert. I did not understand there's more than one type of vanilla wafer. Did you know that? Some of you are sitting here and saying, What? More than one type of vanilla wafer. There are also these. Now, I just want you to note just a couple of things. My wife is a lovely woman, but she sent me to buy vanilla wafers, correct? That's what that text said, vanilla wafers. What she wanted me to buy were something named Nilla wafers... And I just want to point out, I don't think these are wafers at all. I believe, through much study, that these are actually some sort of dry cookie. They're not wafers. What I brought her was technically right. I brought her vanilla wafers. What she wanted was not what was right. She wanted this other thing, some other crazy. And I don't even know. I, did, she, she, I brought it back and she... You know, I'm like, oh, here are your vanilla wafers. And she's like, oh, I didn't want these. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? These are vanilla wafers. No, I wanted, I wanted vanilla wafers. Now, it's funny that so many of you knew exactly what that was right off the bat. But whatever. It had to be interpreted. It had to be interpreted. 
And so when you read a verse like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, we look at that and we're like, oh, it's obvious. We love everybody. No, it's not obvious. You shall love your neighbor as yourself does not obviously mean love everybody. It's obvious to us because we had Jesus Christ interpret that for us and tell us what it meant. But it's not obvious to everybody. So this expert in the law's question may be disingenuous, but it is not wrong for him to ask, who is my neighbor? So what does Jesus do? If you've been around the church world very long, you know exactly what he, he, uh, he did, he, what he usually did. He told a story. He told a story. But I want you to think about something. When you ask the question, or when this expert in the law asks this question, who is my neighbor? Technically, is he not asking, who can I not love? Isn't that what he's asking? That's what he's asking. Who can I not love? That's, that's the basic question. Who can I get away with not loving? That's, that's essentially what he's, what he's asking, and Jesus knows that. So he says this in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and the crowd that was listening to him tell the story is like, Uh-oh, that's a bad part of the country. You don't want to go there. Jesus keeps going. When he was attacked by robbers, and they were like, of course he was attacked by robbers. You don't go down from Jerusalem to Jericho without some, you know, guards or weapons or something. It says they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, it's interesting. This, we interpret this as a parable, and it might be. The, the, your heading probably says parable. It doesn't necessarily mean it actually is a parable. It could have been a news story that they had all been reading about. It could have been something Jesus was pointing out, something they were all familiar with, something that they all knew. Beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And verse 31, a priest. Now, this is interesting. The crowd's like, well, a priest. I'm curious what a priest would do. How, how would a priest interpret this situation in light of who the priest was? Now, now you got to know that a priest was, was expected to live a little bit to a different standard than maybe everybody else. Like, one of the things the priests could not do is they could not touch dead bodies, which isn't really a problem for most of us most of the time. But every once in a while, I guess it came up, and the priest could not touch dead bodies because that would make him ceremonial un- ceremonially unclean. Then he'd have to go cleanse himself, and it would be a whole mess. So a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, I think we read that, and we're like, oh, that's shocking. Of course, a priest who loves God should know that you love everybody. But the priest, valuing what he believed God had told him to do, which was to remain clean, looked at this person who could have been a dead body and thought, "Mm, I better stay away from that because in order to love God, I cannot interact with this dead body. And so the language of he passed by indicates he was trying to avoid. Now, maybe he just thought the body was gross, but a lot of interpreters believe that he was trying to avoid uncleanliness. The priest passed by. So Jesus tells this story. In every good story, there, there are more than one character. And so to a Levite, who is a, somebody who worked in the temple, temple servant, uh, and wouldn't quite have the same stringent standards as the priest, but would similarly have stringent standards. And, and he came, and he saw the body, and he passed on the other side. Again, the same kind of idea, trying to maybe avoid uncleanliness. And I think the crowd is getting a little uneasy, because they're like... Somebody's got to be the hero here. You can't just leave your fellow countrymen in the ditch. These were two people who looked at this guy who they, I'm assuming they knew was another uh, Jewish man and felt like they couldn't help him. And I think the, the crowd listening to the story is feeling like, well, wait a second. You were, somebody's got somebody's to help him. And I think this is just total like 
absolute, you know, out of the blue guessing. But I think they were probably thinking, you know, just a normal, everyday, average Joe was going to be the hero in the story. Because you've got to have, you know, the three parts. This guy didn't do the right thing. This guy didn't do, the right th- didn't do the right thing. And then the third guy, he did the right thing. I think they thought it was just going to be some ordinary, you know, guy that came through and did the right thing. But then Jesus said this, but a Samaritan. Now, I know most of you understand, if you grew up going to church, you understand the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along very well at all. In fact, the word Samaritan was an insult. They leveled at Jesus. They're like, be honest, Jesus, you're really just a Samaritan, aren't you, in the book of John? That was an insult. Like if teenagers were gathering around, like telling your mama jokes or whatever, they'd probably, you're Samaritan jokes or something like that. It was, a, it was an insulting thing to, uh, to do to one another. Um, Parents, like, I don't know, maybe parents, when Jesus said, but a Samaritan, the parents in the room covered their kids' ears like, Samaritans, we don't talk about Samaritans. They're bad news. And I mean, if something went wrong, it was a Samaritan's fault. If you had a Samaritan in a movie, it automatically got an R rating in Hebrew society, like, just just like that. It was just so un... uh, You just could not have Jews and Samaritans. They just did not get along. It was an insult. So for Jesus to introduce this guy into this story is a shock. It's a bit of a shock. But a Samaritan, like, hold up, Jesus. The Samaritan better not be the hero of this story, or I'm going to be pretty upset. I need, I need a fellow countryman, because there are two people that just passed this guy by who, by any definition of a neighbor, would have considered the man in a ditch a neighbor. But then you're bringing this other definition, who by most definitions agreed upon at the time would not have considered the man in a ditch a neighbor. It says, but a Samaritan... As he traveled, came when the man, where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And the crowd's like, oh, wait a second here. This is, not, this is not okay, Jesus. You can't just go telling stories with a Samaritan's the good guy. This is not the way this works. But if you read the book of Luke, that happened over and over and over where the outsider was actually the one that Jesus focused on, Luke uh, in his writing focused on. So Jesus tells this story. Samaritan guy went to him bandages, wounds, all that stuff. We're going to talk about that more in the coming weeks. Um, But as he got to the end of the story where the Samaritan had done the right thing, where the Samaritan, uh, somebody who would not be the neighbor, treated this man as a neighbor, Jesus uh, tells this story, and he turns to the expert in the law, who's probably still standing, as he was at the beginning, and Jesus said to this expert, crowd full of people, to this person standing up, who had disrupted whatever was going on, and said, so who do you think was a neighbor to this man in the ditch. Who do you think? And this this expert in the law has to answer in front of the crowd, but he's in a trap. He's in a bind because the only correct answer is the Samaritan. That's the only outlet that Jesus has left in this story. But he's in front of a room full of people who, if he says that, are going to be like, well, I don't know what to think. They're going to go away scratching their heads. This guy is going to lose his reputation as an expert in the law. I don't know if it's that drastic, but... But I just imagine, and this conclusion is inescapable. And, and I don't know if Jesus took any satisfaction. You know when you get in uh, an argument about something dumb with someone who was in a movie, who married who, stuff, dumb stuff like that, right? And, and, and then maybe the argument gets, just it, it takes it to that next level, you know, like you're watching whatever it is, and, or, or how, what's the population of a country, or whatever, you know, whatever stupid thing that you're quibbling about, you know what I'm talking about? And, uh, and you finally find some sort of, like, source for the information, and you were right. Do you know that feeling that I'm talking about? 
where maybe it's you and your wife are arguing or you and your husband are arguing and you are right. Do you not feel like just the, the greatest saint in the world if you just kind of like walk away and don't like rub it in their face? Don't you feel like you've just done the most honorable, wonderful thing? Because most of us are like, uh, so Wikipedia says that, uh, that Gene Hackman was the lead in this movie. So uh, <clears throat> who was right now? Who was right? You make your spouse say it, right? Oh, you were right. You were right. My wife says when that happens, when we're arguing about something and it turns out that, that I'm right, she says, you better write this date down in your calendar because this does not happen very often. <laughs> You're right. So I think Jesus kind of clears his throat and he's like, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Mr. Teacher in the Law, Mr. Expert, Mr. Lawyer, who was the neighbor to the man? And this lawyer's, I bet you he mumbles the answer, doesn't he? Because he knows what the right answer is. And I don't know, some people believe that he wasn't even willing to say uh, Samaritan. So in verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Recognizing what it took to be a person's neighbor, but unwilling to say the word Samaritan. Maybe. I think that that's an interesting observation. Who was the one? Now this is so interesting to me. This is so interesting to me because notice the story starts out with the question, who is my neighbor? But instead, Jesus poses a different question at the end of the story. The different question at the end of the story is, who was the neighbor? Now, this may not mean anything to you, but to me it was fascinating. The lawyer is looking for this categorical answer. He's looking for, here is the sharp line. These people are not your neighbors. These people are your neighbors. And instead, he ends with something different. The question for the expert in the law was about them, but for Jesus, the question was not about them. The question was about us. Not who is my neighbor, but am I being a neighbor? Not where can I draw the line, but how am I behaving in the sphere of influence in which God has placed me? The question wasn't about them, it was about us. Who is the neighbor? And Jesus said, you are the neighbor. There's no more lines to be drawn because you are the person acting like a neighbor with everybody. I don't have to figure out, "Mm, do they fit down this list of categories that I've decided are people belonging to my neighbor? I don't even have to answer that anymore because I am the neighbor. Jesus completely changes the paradigm here, and that kind of blows my mind a little bit. It seems so brilliant because he's, the expert is concerned about being technically right without being right right, but Jesus says it's not about defining the neighbor. It's not about defining the neighbor. It's about being the neighbor. Patrick, that sounds like something you'd find in a fortune cookie. Thanks a lot for that. I could have gone to Panda Express and got just about as deep spiritual insight as that was. It's not about defining the neighbor. It's about being the neighbor. What kind of, what is that? What does that do for me? I mean, how, how, that might be underwhelming to you, but I want you to know something. That changes everything. I don't have to worry about whose neighbor, or who is my neighbor. I have to worry about who am I a neighbor to. And so in every setting, I don't have to ask, does this person qualify? I, ask, I have to ask the question of what do I do? Not, is this person fit my standards, my definitions, my presuppositions? Do I have to go to the list? Do they deserve? Do I think? What do I? I have to decide, but am I being the neighbor? Am I being the priest, the Levite, or am I being the Samaritan in this story? I think this, what Jesus does is he makes two shifts, and these shifts obliterate our excuses because they shift us from being concerned about being technically right 
and move us into the realm of trying to be actually heart right, right, right. And the shift one is this. Stop thinking about categories and start thinking about people. Have you ever had this happen where you are maybe having a conversation and you're making some broad generalization about about a group of people or about a gender or about a nationality and you realize there's someone among you who represents that group of people or that gender or that nationality and all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, uh, present company accepted, of course, right? You know, this, what I'm, this generalization does not apply to you. Well, maybe you've been guilty of thinking about people in categories. But then have you ever had the experience where you had an idea about maybe, maybe it was just a a certain family with a certain last name. Maybe it was a certain ethnicity. Maybe it was a certain gender. And you just had these ideas and actually interacting with people of that background, actually interacting with people of that nationality, people of that political persuasion, people that were different than you changed your idea because you stopped thinking about people in categories and you started thinking about people as people. Doesn't that change how we behave when we stop imposing categories on people? Especially when those categories are constructs of our assumptions about them. When we start interacting with people as people, it changes how we see them. But the second shift I think that's important is we've got to stop thinking about us. We've got to start thinking about them. Jesus seems to imply in the story that the Levite and the uh, priest avoided the guy in order to keep the first commandment. Well, if I don't interact, or if I interact with this guy, I'm going to become unclean, and that's going to affect me, and that's going to hurt me, and that's going to change my plans. But the Samaritan looked at the guy and had pity on him, implying that the Samaritan was concerned about the man in the ditch. The priest and the Levite were concerned about themselves, maybe for good reasons, maybe for solid reasons. I want to do what God wants me to do. But they were concerned about themselves, and the Samaritan seems to be concerned about the man in the ditch. Remember the question the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? It's kind of like asking yourself, who can I not love? Can I, can I just ask this? Let's be concrete just for a second. And I just want you to think about this. I want you to get rid of categories, get rid of demographics, and stop thinking about people as divisions and groups. And just think about people as people. And ask yourself this. When or who was the last time that you tangibly, sacrificially showed love for someone that you felt like you had a valid or compelling reason not to love? When was the last time you showed love for someone for whom you had a valid or compelling reason not to love? Oh, they're not really my neighbor. Well, they're probably dead in the ditch. At least check the pulse, man. When was the last time you showed love for someone that you had valid and compelling reasons not to love, someone who had hurt you, someone who was different than you, someone that you would typically avoid? When was the last time you showed sacrificial, tangible love to someone like that? An author by the name of Brian Mavis says this. I don't have this quote on the overhead, but in life, he says, we can only do a few things really well, and it's a good idea to make certain that one of those things is what Jesus says is most important. If this, if Jesus, if we agree with Jesus and we agree with the expert in the law that this is one of the two most important things in the world that we can do, then it's not something that we can just walk out of here not thinking about, not wondering about, not uh, asking ourselves difficult and honest questions about. 
Now, for some of you, you're thinking, wow, that opens up kind of a big, scary world that I'm not interested in entering, because what am I supposed to do when this happens? And we'll talk about that in the next couple of weeks. George, next week, is going to be talking about helping that actually helps, because sometimes our desire to help people actually makes things worse for them, and Jordan's going to talk us through that a little bit. Uh, In two weeks, we're going to talk about how you narrow down this broad everyone category and, and focus on people that God has actually given you an opportunity to influence, but while still loving everybody. But this is what I want to leave you with, is what Jesus said in verse 37, bottom half of verse 37. We're going to invite one of our elders up to close this out in a word of prayer. But this is what Jesus said. The neighbor, the expert in the law said, so the neighbor, I guess, was the one who showed mercy. And this is what he, Jesus would tell us if we were standing before him. He'd say to you, to me, let's go from here. Let's go and do likewise. Let's go and love people who we've we've shunned because we put them in a different category, a different demographic, made assumptions about them. Let's go and love, sacrificially, tangibly love people that are different than us, for whom we may have valid reasons not to want to show love. Let's go and do likewise. Travis?